This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, that last song uh, we sang as we worshiped together would even put a smile on Presbyterians' faces in, uh, in worship. So uh, great song, great truths there that we herald. Um, I think we forget how much of our identity we're struggling to get from places other than the great I am who does tell me who I am, and it's true. So let's, uh, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. You know, we, we seem to be, by I think any reasonable measure or account, a nation uh, adrift right now, adrift in moral chaos. Uh, that's a bit exhausting, a bit exhausting for most of us. We, just a, a couple of evidences of this that we see um, as a fruit of deeper roots from the last couple of weeks. We saw the, uh, the leaked uh, Supreme Court brief uh, that shows them likely to vote to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade and the chaos that followed that um, as uh, contrary to federal law, Supreme Court justices' personal homes um, had people marching on them, trying to sway them um, against voting that way. We had uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, last week, we had a, uh, a pro-life advocacy center that was firebombed. Um, we see people marching uh, with signs, hands off, my body, my body, my decision. Um, th- those things might hold weight if it were simply their body, but the very fact that it's a, uh, an abortion discussion shows that there's at least two bodies involved, um, not just one. We had the horrific shooting in Buffalo in the grocery store where 10 people were killed, three more were ro- wounded, almost all African-American, almost all senior adults by a deluge, deranged, evil 19-year-old who knows nothing at all about life yet, but who had uh, embraced and applauded the ideals of white supremacy, uh, and black Americans once again felt the sting of being targeted simply because of the color of their skin. And on and on it goes. I was listening to a question posed to David Brooks. If you don't know David Brooks, he'd be somebody good for you to get to know. You can Google his name later. He is uh, an opinion writer, an editorial writer for the New York Times, a uh, devout Christian guy, um, and, and has a, a unique um, perspective on culture as one who uh, lives for Jesus Christ but has been called by God to work primarily in the quarters uh, of American liberalism and social elites. So uh, the question was posed to Brooks, are the times really as crazy as they seem? Or is this just life? It made me curious this morning. How many of you feel like the times right now seem crazier than they have at m- than than they have at most points in your life? How many would say that? Yeah, and that's even a bunch of you that lived through the sixties and the seventies, which majored in crazy. Right? It's um, it's wild. And Brooks said this. He said, "Yes, I think it's beyond dispute." that the times are as crazy as they seem. Here's some statistics and research that tends to back that up. The number of people who say they have no close friends has quadrupled in one generation, grown by four times 
in one generation, those who say they have no close friends. The number of people committing suicide has risen by 33% in the last 20 years. Stunning. The number of people suffering from depression is up 57% in the same time frame. 54% of Americans, a majority of Americans say, no one knows them well. No one really knows them. Drunk driving, this was an interesting one just over the last two years, really pandemic-related. Drunk driving, traffic fatality numbers are up over the last two years, even though the number of miles we're driving is significantly down. We're just driving worse, more recklessly. Physical altercations on airplanes are way up. Add to all of these numbers the the growing opioid, opioid addiction in our nation, radical political polarization that we're all aware of, record rise in hate crimes and murders in American uh, city centers. It's, it's, it's the Wild West in our nation right now. It seems anything goes and everything goes. It is uh, the final chapter, verse of numbers, that each one is doing what they perceive to be right in their own eyes. There are sociological reasons for this, economic reasons for this, technological reasons for this, but there are also moral reasons for this. Uh, Brooks continued to talk a little bit because they, uh, the interviewer asked him, why do you think this is as one who is a, a student of your own faith, of the Christian faith, and of American culture and history um, and the socioeconomic political environments? And here's what, what he said. He said, historically, Americans, even putting religion aside, Just we as a people have believed that character was something that you worked on, that your personal character was something that mattered and that you needed to work on whether or not you were a religious person. We we were fundamentally flawed. This was the belief through most of our history as a nation, as a society, that, that we as human beings, we as Americans, were fundamentally flawed and sinful and broken people. And even irreligious people would hold to that. And we needed to work on that. We needed some kind of moral formation. Some would turn to faith, some would turn to education, some to the military, some all kinds of different places to try and work on sort of our character as a whole. And in the late 50s and 60s, there was a shift where basically we said, you know what, we're not flawed, we're basically good inside. We're basically good inside. And people lost the sense of the purpose that character formation held in, our, in their life and at the center of society, regardless of your job, right? Everybody agreed that um, kindness, consideration, being a good neighbor, by and large, these things were agreed upon and others throughout our society. Well, the, the shift of the 50s and 60s, late 50s, I would say, um, and early to mid-60s didn't last. It turns out we're not basically good inside. Um, we are indeed sinfully broken and dangerously self-centered. And then Brooks said, out of, the, out of the excessive trust in self, it's a good phrase there, out of the excessive trust in self that drives the hyper-individualism of the West and especially the United States, came moral anarchy. Everyone doing whatever they wanted to do. Break up in family, break up in marriage, devaluing of community, um, disregard of basic decency, basic kindness and consideration toward one another. But there's something inside of us that can't stand. We can't stand moral anarchy very long, right? Anarchy just burns everything to the ground, including ourselves. 
And so he said, in the last six or eight years, there's been a shift to try to get out of moral anarchy, really longer than that, 10 or 12 years, um, through politics. The, the struggle with that is politics is a moral system that says, I'm good and I'm right, my tribe is good and my tribe is right, and our enemies are wrong and they must be destroyed. They must be destroyed. So instead of individual anarchy, we've gotten tribal anarchy. Everybody's divided themselves into these tribes. And we're trying to achieve moral righteousness by fighting our foes. And the cure is almost worse than the disease, right? Because the, this particular cure led us from moral anarchy to moral war, where we're just always, now, you know, Americans, we're not likely, I hear people talk about the Civil War. I'm like, are you kidding? You can't have a Civil War anymore where one side has Hummers and tanks and F-18s and F other things. You just can't do it, right? But, but a, a Civil War of words and of ideology, most certainly. But moral war leaves us in moral chaos, and that's where we are today. That's where we are today. And this seems to have infected the church. It seems to have infected uh, the evangelical church, which historically has been the strongest um, in terms of being centered in the authority of Scripture and the basic tenets of the historic gospel. Where often it seems the most loving Christians can't seem to keep from compromising the truths of the faith, and Christians most willing to hold fast to the central truths of our faith can't seem to be loving. This has seeped in to the church. God has a word for us about this issue of moral chaos and belief, about understanding, and then the lives that we live in the communities he's placed us in from the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. Let's look here. As Paul begins to turn a corner, he's been entirely doctrinal in his teaching in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now he makes a pivot in chapter 3, as Paul is common uh, to do, or is common for Paul to do in his letters, into how right thinking and right belief should then empower our lives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. God, open our eyes and our hearts to the truth and the power of your word. God, help us to have eyes that see, God, by your grace to have ears that hear, by your mercy to have hearts that receive. Father, speak to us as a church this morning. Speak to us as individuals with sin in our lives, God, whose minds in one area or another are twisted and crooked and need to be straightened out by the beauty and the truth of the gospel. God, where there's brokenness in this room this morning, I pray that you'd provide healing. Where there's confusion and uncertainty and doubt, often left unspoken, God. I pray that there would be, by your grace, a sense of freedom and assurance. God, bind us all together in love. Empower us to seek you 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it, it does seem indisputable when you, you look at what's going on around and, and a bunch of that we just covered that we are living in a time of moral chaos. But behind moral chaos, behind moral chaos is always doctrinal confusion. And when I say doctrinal confusion, I just mean uh, confusion of understanding, confusion uh, of, of accepting and, and ha- having known in our minds what is true? Confusion about what is true, right, and just. Confusion around what truths are, to borrow a phrase from the Declaration of Independence, self-evident because they're rooted in and flow from God himself. A society can hold together through almost anything when there is a, a central core of beliefs that the vast majority of the society holds to be true. But when those are gone... It is what we're seeing now, moral chaos. And so I want to speak to you just briefly now about your position in Christ and your priority in Christ. Your position in Christ and your priority in Christ. See, in the gospel, if you study it carefully, God has never promised that the gospel is going to change culture. In fact, if you look at the Bible carefully and you read it seriously, you'll find that God's kingdom is going to continue continue to advance and get larger and wider and the world's going to continue to get worse and worse in many ways. But as followers of Christ, we should not be blown all around by this teaching and that. And what prevents us as Paul is making this transition before he moves into completely ethical teaching that follows these four verses, this is a a transitional passage right here between the first two chapters and what's going to follow all the way to chapter 4 verse 6. He wants us to know something about our position in Christ and about our priority in Christ. Let's do uh, position first and we see this really in two phrases. The first we see in verse 1, raised with Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. When you came to faith, Paul wants you to know and he wants you to remember that a number of things happened as God by his spirit awakened in you a reality to who you were and who he is. Your sins were forgiven. Wiped clean. Remembered no more by God. You were adopted as sons and daughters of God, into the family of God. You were given a new nature through regeneration. As you were born again by the Spirit of God, out of something and into something. And Paul says here, you've also been raised with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And if you look up a little bit at chapter 2, verse 20, this is a parallel to what he says in 2.20. In 2.20, Paul says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? And now Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. And he goes on here. It's this parallel that not only have you died with Christ, you have, but you've also risen with Christ. And you now live in a new sphere. You now live in a new domain, if it were. You've moved You've moved from death to life, from darkness to light. You've moved from bondage to freedom in Christ 
through His resurrection, you've been transferred from one realm to another, from the realm of condemnation before God due to your rebellion and sin against Him to full acceptance and righteousness in God through the person and work of Jesus Christ applied to you by the Holy Spirit. This is something that really has taken place. And Paul wants you to understand that you now have a a new position in life. No matter how you feel, and can we agree that we all go through days, weeks, sometimes seasons where we don't feel like we have a new position before God. Anybody been there? Just me. Hey, you guys are killing me lately. Yeah, one, thank you. One or two others, yeah. Like three sinners in here. Um, but we go through seasons where we feel like we're failing. We're failing our Lord. We've lost our passion. We've lost our drive. Maybe sin is more enticing to us than we know it should be. Paul would say it doesn't matter in this sense what you feel. What matters is what is true. And what is true is that you've been raised with Christ. You've been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to freedom. But there's another phrase. There's another phrase. Not only does he say that we've been raised with Christ, but if you look at verse 3, he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, don't confuse this. Back in verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ, Um, And if you think about this with regard to the picture of baptism, I won't say a lot now because I'll say more uh, in a few minutes about that. But there's a death and there's a resurrection that is uh, implied and symbolized and pictured in baptism. But what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that the old you, the you who ran the show for you, the you who decided what you would believe and what you wouldn't, what was right and what was wrong, the you who was out for your own promotion, your own glory, That person is now dead. That person is now dead. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. Now, the Colossians would have really understood this based on the way that they did baptism. Let me tell you how it was often done in Colossae and in the regions around Colossae. As men and women were coming to faith in the gospel, and this was very much an adult message, right? It wasn't that they were just waiting for the kids to grow up from VBS and then become church members. Men and women were being told about their sin, told about God who sent his son as an atoning and saving sacrifice. And they were coming to faith in Christ. And when they were baptized, they were often brought down to a river or to a water source, wearing the same grungy clothes that they wear every day. It wasn't that long ago in our own society that bathing was a, was a once or twice a week kind of thing. Any of you have teenagers now, sometimes they beat that in a day. You're awesome. Your water bill gets as high as your utility bill. It's like, why is our electric bill and our water bill the same amount? Well, because five children are showering seven times a day. I'm bringing our own baggage out. Um, But uh, they, they would come down in their grungy, dirty clothes, and they would come down into the water, and they would be baptized, professing their public faith in Jesus Christ, symbolizing their death in him, and they're being raised to a new way of life. to a a new paradigm of thinking, to a new value system that would not be defined 
by Jewish ritual. It would not be defined by Roman political views and ideals, but we would be defined by Jesus Christ himself. And they were given a new white outer garment that they would often wear the rest of that day. And it was a, it was a very tangible symbol of what was taking place, what had happened inside them, that they'd been purified by God. And if they now stand before him because of the righteousness of Christ as righteous themselves. Something has happened. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, here's what Paul is saying. Something has happened in your life that is real and true, but hidden from human observation. The fruit of it will be seen over time. It better be seen over time. Because the scriptures are quite clear that those who persevere until the end are those who are saved. It's not about works, but it's about the fact that those who are truly saved will persevere until the end. They'll continue seeking Christ by the grace of God, bearing by the grace of God more fruit over time as their lives are sanctified in Jesus Christ. The fruit will be seen over time, but the essence remains unseen, invisible, hidden. Maybe some of you came to faith little bit later in life, maybe you were in college or you were a young adult or maybe you were middle-aged, right? You came to faith in Christ, you were baptized, but you looked exactly the same the day after as you did the day before. There's a hiddenness to what's going on. It's unseen, it's invisible. But also what Paul is saying is that our lives are now all wrapped up in Jesus. They're all wrapped up. In Jesus. They should be. They're hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we kind of know what it means to be all wrapped up in this sometimes. You can hear people talk about it. Hey, I wonder if we should go out, you know, this night. Let's invite so and so. They can't do that. They're always doing this. You know, they're always into that. You know, they do that, but they're totally wrapped up in whatever. We we know what this means and what this looks like. And sometimes we can hear that and think, okay, God. Let me lay my heart before you and be honest and say, what am I all wrapped up in? What is it that other people would think about me instantly before they think about Jesus? Just something you and I should be considering. This is the position, Paul says. This is the position you have. You've been raised with Christ and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. You belong to him. You belong to him. But then Paul says a word mixed in here about your priority, your priority in Christ. If you look at verses one and two, this is really profound. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Now see, this is completely um, contrary to what our society tells us all day, every day, which is you can't guide the heart. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? Just let the heart chase it. Just listen to your heart. Most terrible advice you'll ever be given. A heart not reined in and a heart not sifted through a mind empowered by the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. Just listen to your heart. You'll know what's true. That's absurd. That's absurd. Paul says we actually have the ability to set our affections, the focus of our hearts on something. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated 
at the right hand of God. This is a picture of Christ being enthroned. Christ is Lord of the world now. He will not come back again as a suffering servant. He will not come back the second time as a lamb to be slaughtered. That's done. He is the reigning and ruling king of all creation now. And he sits enthroned in the place of power in glory at the right hand of the Father. Set your hearts, set your hearts on things above. Now, this setting of your hearts is something that it takes work on our part. It takes grace-driven effort to say, God, help me set my heart's affection on you and on things above where you dwell. He goes on, though. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So, so Paul is saying, as Paul is um, usually doing, the totality of who you are, your heart, your mind, bring them together, set them up on God, not on the things of earth. And he's saying that this is not a casual glance, right? This is a, a concentrated gaze. It's not a casual glance. It's a concentrated gaze. I have a son learning to drive right now. And sometimes, if he gets too concerned about his speed, he forgets about where the lines in the road are. Because he's gazing when he should be glancing. And so we talk about where you gaze while you're driving and where you glance while you're driving. You gaze out the front windshield. You glance at the mirrors and the speedometer, right? But you gaze out that front windshield. This is not a casual glance. This is not a casual glance you give God three minutes in the morning while you're going through a quick devotion and then off to do and to think and to pursue everything you would have done and thought and pursued anyway throughout the day. This is a concentrated gaze, and we need help with this. We need help with this. This is, um, this is community language Paul is using here. He's using plural tenses here as he talks about where, where our gaze is to be set, where our hearts are to be turned, where our minds are to be fixed based on our position in Christ. Charles Mole said that Christian conduct is the result not simply of the effort to be good, but of incorporation into the body of Christ. We need one another, don't we? We do. We need brothers and sisters affirming us. We need brothers and sisters wrapping their arms around us when we've had a, a total failure of a day. We're like, God hates me. I'm miserable. I'm on the B team or maybe the C team. N.T. Wright said this, God intends Christian behavior to be reinforced and upheld, reinforced and upheld by the friendship, company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. He's absolutely right that our behavior, our living out of the gospel in our lives, our representing to the world around us, including our spouses and our kids, our extended family, our neighborhood, our direct neighbors, our work associates, our classmates, has to be reinforced and upheld by the friendship, company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. This is why, um, look at your programs for just a minute. 
Look at your programs. In there, you, you have those half sheets with the summer home groups. That's why we're going to drive and drive and drive and push and push and push and encourage and encourage and encourage you guys to get into a summer home group. They're just eight weeks long. And like I said, we expect you to miss two or three of those weeks. We hope you don't. If you don't, you get a little gold star at the end. But I uh, said on top of a cookie. But we know that, that people go in summer. Um, but we know this also to be true. That is, as Paul is grounding his teaching in corporate language, in plural language, you and I need one another. How long has it been since you sat consistently for a period of time, week after week after week, in the home of another believer, surrounded by a small group of believing men and women, around the Word of God, seeking to prayerfully and joyfully and lovingly apply what God was teaching us on Sunday morning? Encouraging one another, praying for one another, challenging one another. There used to be an old chili commercial. How long has it been since you had a piping hot bowl of Wolf Brand chili? Well, partner, that's too long. That might have been a Texas thing. I don't know. May not have, may not have had much airplay in Georgia, uh, but it played for like a decade all the time in, in Texas. One of the things that my kids will never know is commercials, right? They'll just never... They'll never, we, we, there's a, a generation gap where all of us above can remember certain commercials and little ditties that went in marketing with companies. And then there's a hard break right about my kid's age. And even our twins who are three and a half will be like, mommy, uh, when there's the slightest pause and a commercial might come on. They've already learned, so that's all for free. But um, it, we go far too long without this central historical act that really, really has characterized most of the church throughout Christian history, gathering together in homes around the word of God, loving one another, encouraging one another, getting uh, to know one another. I really encourage you to look at that half sheet right now, even while I'm preaching. Find one of those groups and write the group leader's last name on your connection card. Write the group leader's last name on your connection card. We'll follow up with you this week. You can go online, you can go on the app, and sign up everywhere, but we want to see you guys signing up. It's going to be a phenomenal experience for you individually and for us as a church through the summer as we do this. We need one another. We can't move from casual glances at God to concentrated gaze on God and the things of God without help from one another. You know, some of you are familiar with the phrase that uh, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. I submit to you that the biggest issue in most of our churches today is that we are so earthly-minded that we are no heavenly good. That our hearts are so set on our career, so set on our family, so set on uh, uh, seeing what our kids are going to do and watching them advance, so set on what's going on in the culture around us, so set on the political environment, so set on we could go on and on and on and on, that we really are no heavenly use. The thing about this is Paul Paul wants us to know that, that of the Christian life that he's about to begin unfolding in verse 5 and continue all the way through the rest of chapter 3 and early chapter 4, there's no use for us to try to lean in and live like Christians without the resurrected power of God filling our hearts and our lives. Without our minds being set on the things of God, without our hearts being set on the things of God, our hearts rightly turned and our minds rightly turned as a result of understanding our position in Christ so that our priorities in Christ match 
what God tells us in Scripture they should be, leads to a different kind of living. It really, really does. And when Paul says here, um, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above, some of you, you, you may be jumping around to a passage in Philippians where Paul lists uh, a whole host of things that are pure, right, noble, honorable. It says set your mind on that. But I think if we look at the language here carefully, this is more likely uh, uh, to be a reference back to or jumping off or springboarding from what our Lord said in Matthew 6, As he watched his disciples anxious in their version of chaos in their day. And he said, why, why, do you, why are you so anxious for all these things? Let me ask you this morning, what are you anxious about? What are you anxious about? What is it that you're nervous about? What is it that keeps rolling around your mind? Jesus would say, and he says to you this morning, don't, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. The God who knows you, the God who keeps all of life held together by the power of his word knows you. And he loves you and he cares for you and he knows what time it is in your journey and story. And he's going to take care of you. And then Jesus says this often famous thing in Matthew 6, Seek first. Seek as priority, as primary. God's kingdom and God's righteousness. If you'll do that, he'll add all these other things in for you. He's going to care for everything else if you'll set your heart and your mind on his kingdom and his righteousness. The, the Greek word here that Paul uses for set your mind here and set your heart here, set, is the same Greek word that Jesus uses for seek there. It's the same thing. Set your heart. Set your mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. Set your hearts, set your minds. Speaking of your priority in Christ. One more phrase with regard to your priority in Christ. Look at verse four. When Christ, who is your life. Do you believe that this morning? That Christ is your life. That's why death doesn't get the final say in your life. Because Christ is your life and he's defeated death. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As Christ goes, you go. Where Christ goes, you go. You goes? You go. If Christ is your life, he must be your priority. If he is your life, he must be your priority. It's interesting that the word priority, when you study words, came out in the, the 1400s. It was an English word. And it wasn't until the 1900s that it had a plural derivative, priorities. Because there weren't priorities. There was a single priority for 500 years. And then in the 20th century, we're like, forget about that. We're going to make all kinds of things first, which is a, an intellectual mathematical impossibility. Paul is saying your position in Christ is that you've been raised with Christ and your life is hidden in Christ. He's wrapped you up. You belong to him. Your priority in Christ 
is setting your heart and your mind on him. Setting your heart and your mind on him. Acknowledging that he is your life. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's saying Christ doesn't forget his people. As forgettable as some of us are. Christ does not forget his people. The power to live the ethics that Paul is about to lay out is unbreakably linked to our position and priority in Christ. Who we are in Christ and what we believe in Christ must then result in transformational living. It's the power of God through the Spirit of God that raised the Son of God back to life that now lives in your life and mine. And the more that we go to God and the more that we walk closely with Him, the more change we experience. And friends, our lives should, more than at any time in our nation's history, this is our culture, this is our context that God has given us, right now, Christians living out the gospel message should should shine more brightly than at any time in the history of our nation. Because sort of the, the cultural Christianity flame is so dim now, it's almost burned out consistently. There's moral chaos everywhere And for men and women to follow Christ, for students in middle school and high school and university to follow Jesus, to trust him morally and ethically, to trust him in love and forgiveness and justice, and to represent him will cause us to stand out in a culture that is more and more embracing and cheering sin. It's one thing to sin, right? We all sin. Let's just do this. Let's level the playing field. How many of you sin? Everybody raise their hands except the people that don't play this game. And I know I've been that person at times. Like, tell me to raise my hand. I'd rather cut it off. But um, almost consensus in here, right? We know that we sin. We know it. We know in our hearts that we're broken and, and God's grace is our hope. But more and more and more, the culture we live in And to some degree, we're beginning to see churches buy into this same behavior with regard to certain social issues. We are not only sinning, but we are embracing and cheering sin. And we better hear a word from God through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Part of what God is telling us through the prophet Isaiah, as he was his people today, is there is a distinct difference between what is good and what is evil. There is a distinct difference between what is dark and what is light, morally speaking and ethically speaking. We live in a nation that more and more is calling evil good and good evil and sharing for that. And it's a very dangerous place to be before a holy God who is just and who will not be mocked. Some of you may have seen in the news this week, came out of broke news stories on Friday, that um, the Archbishop of San Francisco had barred Nancy Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion. Pelosi has been a quote-unquote devout Catholic all of her life. And the Catholic Church has had a a growing split 
between them and an increasingly pro-abortion, a championing of abortion Democratic Party. And this is the first large boom that's come down from that. It is a significant thing in any church. Thank God Protestant churches, evangelical churches, Baptist churches have begun over the last decade to 15 years to rediscover both the biblical teaching and historically pra- uh, historical practice of church discipline um, for uh, the sanctification and the growth of church members. But one of the things that happens when a, a, a church member is disciplined for, for ongoing consistent sin that they just will not repent of, sometimes won't even agree with, um, is that they are put outside of the membership of the church. It doesn't mean depending on how egregious it is or how, how harmful it's been toward people in the church, but it doesn't mean they can't be attending. It does mean they cannot step out and receive communion when it's offered. That, in keeping with Jesus and the New Testament apostles, are to be treated as non-believers. Not hated, right? Welcomed in to attend, but not taking the sacraments, not treated as a member of the church, with the goal being that this action, this excommunication, if you would say that, would move them toward repentance, a softness of heart. Barred for receiving Holy Communion for consistently advocating and championing the taking of the lives of unborn babies. And in the the Catholic canon law, the phrase here that must be agreed upon for someone to be barred from Holy Communion, which is an extremely serious thing in Catholic doctrine, if you understand Catholic doctrine. It's an extremely serious thing in Protestantism, but more so among Catholics. Uh, They're to be barred for obstinately persisting in manifest grave sin. I saw that, and I am not Catholic, but I applaud that move. I applaud that move. It's time that churches begin acknowledging that you and I can't claim the name of Christ claim to be his people, and live any way we want and champion whatever causes we want. Because when we pretend that, we put your soul in danger. Because you're going to be affirmed all your life and then stand before a holy God who will have none of it. And you may just hear Jesus say, I never knew you. You knew of me and you participated in the things of me, but you spent your life advocating for things that ran completely contrary to everything I taught. I don't know how this will turn out. They were very clear in a letter to Miss Pelosi that she was not to present herself for Holy Communion at any Catholic service, and if she does present herself for Holy Communion, she will be denied there. I say good for them. Good for them. The opposite of grace isn't legalism. Legalism is a result of the opposite of grace. The opposite of grace is earning, is seeking to do things in order to earn favor and right standing before God. As we're about to see in Colossians, the Scripture is filled with imperatives of oughts, of how we are to live how we're to one another. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's stand. My prayer for you this morning is that you would thoughtfully place yourself before God and ask Him. Ask Him if there's any way that you're misunderstanding your position in Christ or any way, more likely for many of us, that you have drifted from your priority being in Christ. And others would say, oh, no, no, this person is far more about this, that, and the other than they are Christ. And give that to Him. Ask forgiveness. Here, if you're a baptized believer, a a, a publicly professing follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you as we sing now, as we worship and respond in worship, to step out, participate in communion at one of the stations at the front. We've got gluten-free options at the back. And as you do this this morning, as you take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, symbolizing Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, you move off to the side, you spend some time with the Lord in prayer. I hope you'll realize that what you're doing right there is reaffirming your position in Christ and Christ as your priority, that you've been bought with his blood and his broken body, and now your life is hidden with him and God. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.